Hello and welcome back to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Shabang Sharma, PhD researcher on humanitarian AI systems at University College London. And today I have the pleasure of guest hosting an interview with Susie Madigan, founder of the Machine Race blog series, senior humanitarian advisor at Care International, based in the UK. For today's podcast, she will speak in a personal capacity on behalf of the machine race. And listening in, we have Brent Phillips, the founder of Humanitarian AI Podcast, and Brent will join us for questions and answers as he sees fit throughout the podcast. The topic for today's podcast is AI, solving global problems or creating a new colonial system. Now, ahead of UK government's AI Safety Summit in November, we will discuss some of the human rights and safety implications of AI for society globally, but particularly for communities in the global south who are experiencing humanitarian crises, conflicts, poverty, or marginalization in general. We will look at how to ensure that the design, deployment, and governance of AI is inclusive and equitable, and to make sure that everybody can share in its potential benefits and be protected from potential harms. We will understand why traditional humanitarian NGOs need to think through the implications of AI, both for the societal changes it brings and for the considerations of using AI within humanitarian operations. Welcome, Susie. Would you like to start with sharing your background? First of all, thanks a lot. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the podcast. So uh, yeah, real honor to be on here. I'll give you a bit of background. So at the moment, my role is uh, the senior humanitarian advisor at Care International. So kind of big global humanitarian relief and development agency. And I'm also the founder of The Machine Race, which is a blog series looking at the implications of AI for society, but particularly for marginalized groups in the global south, given, you know, given my background. So, yeah, I know, I know that you've had some really interesting people on the podcast who've had some quite serious career changes. So it always makes me feel good because I did as well. And I think that's kind of influenced the way I come at the AI space. So I started out in communications. I've worked a lot in kind of, well, advertising to start with and then journalism and documentary making. So kind of focused on human rights. But then in my early 30s, I also had a career change and I went to London School of Economics and I uh, did a master's in human rights. And so after that, I kind of worked in protection and conflict reduction and so on for the United Nations and NGOs. So over the kind of like past 15 years or so, I've deployed to quite a few disasters and conflicts and kind of worked on the reintegration of armed groups um, in places like Haiti and Colombia. And then I was running a protection program in Iraq for Syrian refugees and IDPs during the ISIS occupation. And then kind of more traditional humanitarian responses in, you know, say in Beirut for the port explosion and, and Mozambique for Cyclone Kenneth and Adai. So it's kind of, I always come at things from that kind of protection, human rights angle and kind of inclusion of communities. So really, one of the reasons I set up the machine race was really, you know, we think about do no harm so much in operations. So it's really kind of applying that thinking 
about AI within some of the contexts where we work and kind of really being cognizant of the fact that communities in the global south seem to be very absent from these high level conversations about AI design and governance. You mentioned a couple of interesting themes about, you know, your eclectic background and then a few episodes, I guess, when you're working in conflicts in crisis zones that really affected you. And especially in the global south, you saw this power asymmetry, this imbalance and the need for inclusion. So could you talk a little bit more about that? What any particular pivot points in your journey that made you gravitate towards uh, your interest and uh, almost uh, advocacy towards understanding AI from a non-technical perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great question because, you know, I'm, I'm on a real journey here at the moment to try and help other people in the NGO sector and, you know, humanitarians and development workers to understand just how relevant AI is to their work and actually how relevant their work is to AI and their skills. So I'm not a technical expert. You know, I don't have a background in science or, you know, I, I didn't do a degree in computer science. So actually, for years, I hadn't really thought that AI was relevant to me. And then I guess it was around early 2022, I was thinking more about the role of the private sector in creating wider impact in humanitarian and development settings, you know, to complement all the work that kind of humanitarian, traditional humanitarian and development actors do. So as I started researching AI, it was like the penny just suddenly dropped and I had a complete epiphany. And looking at the rate at which AI systems were developing, you know, it's kind of looking at things like DeepMind's AlphaGo in 2015 and AlphaFold, unlocking protein folding in 2018, and actually those early language models as well. I suddenly realized like, hang on, this trajectory is on a path to completely reordering society. And if a brave new world is being architected, it's being designed by a very small, not particularly diverse group of people. So then, of course, we had November 2022 and ChatGPT to AI mainstream. And I think, you know, obviously at that point, suddenly the public became much more aware of how quickly AI is developing. But still, there's really very little public say in how it's developing, how it's deployed, how it's governed, and even less so if you happen to live in the global south. And I think in terms of that, kind of, you know, what were the pivot points and, you know, what, what are the linkages to kind of the work myself and other colleagues do in the field? Well, when there are discussions around AI, there are very lofty ambitions that are promoted. So in particular, you know, by big tech companies. So talking about solving climate change, eradicating poverty, you know, and all of these things actually really read like the vision statements of international NGOs. But we know that doing good, in inverted commas, you know, isn't actually that easy. And so in the NGO sector, what we've realised, or maybe, you know, what we've finally heard over the last few years, is that in our eagerness to kind of pour benevolence on the global south, we've essentially been operating a colonial model for decades. And that is really painful to accept, but we have to accept it to change it. 
so you know in our sector we're trying to make those really important structural changes to address that so it's actually the people in affected communities who are leading decisions and actions so i think that's one thing and then i think you know another pivot point or kind of realization was really as humanitarians we must analyze the root causes of things the structural dynamics and systems that lead to those problems like poverty and conflict so that we can better understand how to respond to them and you know and help local communities to respond to them in the way that they determine is correct and you know ai is going to bring is bringing already so much structural systemic social change that as NGOs, we have to understand what that means for the communities we work in and how we're going to help those communities secure decision-making power over AI that's going to be changing their lives. And that's absolutely fantastic, Susie. Just building on that, because we spoke about colonialism in two different contexts. There's a lot of research and concerns about that in the humanitarian practice itself, The say the unintended consequences of NGOs going in fostering these models of dependency, not building capacities locally, you know, creating reliance on NGOs. Um, and then we have this uh, not necessarily new, but now it's become a focused conversation on uh, AI colonialism. And putting the two of them together just amplifies what NGOs do already quite well, which may have many of these unintended consequences in a more amplified fashion across the world. So could you talk a little bit more about that? What angle should NGOs take to approach this problem? Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is why I love talking to you, Siobhan, because you know, you're talking about the colonization, the, the techno-colonial model, the colonization of AI being a potential risk in the humanitarian sector, and that that's been talked about for a long time. And I think by you know, smart people like yourselves and Brent, you know, who've been in this space thinking about this for a long time, it seems really obvious, but still that group of people, sadly, is actually pretty small. So actually, I think, you know, it's for us who are now looking at this to really kind of get that message out there to our colleagues across the humanitarian and development sector, because they're very, you know, people, while people understand that aid needs to be decolonized, and they've understood that, they won't understand necessarily yet that AI also needs to be decolonized. So in terms of, yeah, kind of, Breaking down, you know, how humanitarians look at AI, I think there are two different angles and it is kind of, as you say, so firstly, it's, you know, and I think this is where often folk on the humanitarian AI podcast tend to focus because they've got that brilliant technological background. The first thing is about thinking about the implications of using AI applications within humanitarian and development work, as you say. So both the potential, and there is huge potential for making our work more effective. And then it's about understanding and mitigating any potential risks. You know, so as with all programming, we need to understand how to do no harm. You know, we need to understand what the potential harms could be. And that's a significant amount of work across, you know, each potential application of AI in the field, and not least because of the speed at which this is all developing. But, you know, as with the rest of our programming, we, we have to ensure that proposed AI interventions are participatory, that they're locally led. And that's a very different thing, right? If you're, you know, there's one thing about working out how would designing a, a school building program be participatory. That's a very different question to 
how do we make sure that this particular chatbot to give services around gender-based violence is also participatory and safe. So it's kind of getting our heads around that. But also, you know, like all programming or traditional programming, any AI interventions need to be fair, accountable and transparent. And obviously those three key words, you know, are are key words when we're talking about artificial intelligence, not just in this space, but in others. So that's one. It's how do we deploy AI systems safely and effectively and inclusively in the field and make sure that they're not causing any harm? Secondly, it's about thinking about AI on a macro level. So for me, that's about analysing and mitigating the potential ways that AI more broadly could be a driver of humanitarian need or development need. And so whether that is increasing inequalities you know, globally or whether it's about driving exclusion and a new colonial model, whether that's about electoral violence or other harms. So personally, I really am, you know, I'm really concerned that this over, you know, a potential over-reliance on AI systems could re-establish or reinforce colonial structures in ways that actually it would be harder to combat than those historical kind of lo-fi, low-tech ways of exercising power over people. And I know some people, you know, obviously the word decolonization can be triggering for some people, you know, and I think it's good to be open about that. You know, it's sadly, you know, it's, it's also at the heart of culture wars and it's kind of how do we navigate all of that? But, you know, essentially what we're talking about is it's really important to acknowledge and accept power structures and the discrimination that goes alongside them. That's fantastic, Susie. I mean, there's so many interesting threads to pull on right there. And what's really interesting here is that um, you give us sort of a sobering reality check because on the Humanitarian AI podcast and similar initiatives, we have the selection bias that we are interviewing and speaking to a group of people who are deeply concerned and interested in creating responsible, inclusive AI systems. But you tell us that um, the larger community either doesn't fully understand it, has some concerns, the explainability issues, the integration issues, there's so many things. So now picking up on that, like in your own personal experience, you've been doing a lot of work to persuade other NGOs and donors, you know, it's time to prioritize thinking about implications of AI. So could you speak a little bit more about that, your own experience in this area? Yes, absolutely. And uh, (laughs) it's always when you get the protection professionals coming on these podcasts, it's like, oh, man, they're the ones that are always the real downers, right? We, We talk about risk and things like that. So I will, I will caveat this with saying that, you know, clearly, there are potential opportunities in there. And so and even there are opportunities for artificial intelligence to shift the power. And some people are quite rightly really excited about that, whether it's Can we use language models like ChatGPT and so on to ease the administrative burden for civil society organisations? Or can it help them navigate complex funding landscapes and processes and kind of understand how on earth you do get funding for X, Y and Z? So there really are, you know, there are obviously some opportunities. But yeah, to your question about whether or not more broadly across the NGO sector uh, is kind of everyone getting their heads around that. Well, I think it's a mixed picture, to be honest. So I think there are pockets of actors within agencies, um, you know, who are looking at the tech side, some of those opportunities. 
some people are in humanitarian and development organizations are already implementing AI applications, but I don't see a widespread engagement across NGOs to consider those protection, do no harm and inclusion aspects. Now, that's not to say that, you know, some of our brilliant tech colleagues are not thinking about some of those things. They are, but it would certainly, I'm sure, help if there was more shoulders to the wheel. Um, But it would certainly help if there are more kind of colleagues across the spectrum of, you know, across different sectors within the NGOs, helping to think about, you know, what, what are some of the implications of this? So I think some actors really do get the social significance, but I think that is where work is needed. And civil society, you know, on the ground in the communities we work in, but also at the international NGO level as well, we've got plenty of expertise in inclusive governance, advocacy around rights and so on. You know, these are all key transferable skills as, as we start to focus on AI. And that, you know, as I say, is a real mission of the machine race and kind of the conversations that I'm trying to have with people to just, you know, so people feel empowered and think, actually, I can really contribute to this positively to this conversation and a fairer AI future society. Certainly. I mean, um, your blog series, The Machine Race, I mean, some of the articles are quite um, interesting and um, because You've mentioned about this in the past, that uh, the idea of AI systems from a non-technical perspective can become too overwhelming for not just humanitarian staff, but people in general. And um, here's where there's a paradox, right, that you have humanitarian agents and agencies in general who have these core principles of leave no one behind, do no harm, uh, to be more reflective about how our actions affect the communities that we operate in. And yet there's a lack of engagement, which you tell us is quite a important reality check that uh, there's a lack of engagement on this front. So could you speak a little bit more about that whole overwhelming aspect of AI that's kind of burdening all of us, but we don't really talk too much about it? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I certainly think that one of the reasons that there's not more engagement in AI across the humanitarian and development sector is that people just feel overwhelmed by the enormity of it. And I think that's for two reasons. So first of all, I think people say that I'm not a tech expert. I don't know anything about computer science or artificial intelligence seems very confusing. That's techie stuff that happens within a black box, if they were even to know that phrase. It's not for me. Right. And I think that can be really intimidating. And then secondly, I think the second reason that people might be overwhelmed by this is that there is so much of the discussion centers around the potential harms of AI. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations about, you know, and stories in the media and so on, and also at the academic level about potentially dystopian futures. And it's, from my perspective, it's quite right to be concerned about potential existential threats. But probably what would keep me up at night more than that is, you know, what are the potential harms occurring now and in already through kind of bias or exclusion and so on. So it's an absolutely enormous topic to be thinking about all of the potential ways, all the potential kind of risks that there might be that as humanitarians and development actors, we should get our heads around and start working out how do we mitigate those 
And then there's all the opportunities because as humanitarian actors, we want to make sure that we are delivering the most effective aid to the largest number of people. And so if we're not taking up opportunities that exist, then also we're not fulfilling what we need to do and and our responsibility to the communities that we're serving. So I think there's two reasons for that. And and one of my objectives with the machine race is really to try and demystify AI, but also largely through through that kind of like admission, you know, I'm not a tech expert. You don't need to be a tech expert with me. This is a learning journey. Let's all go on that together and let's all share as much kind of learning with each other as, as possible. And I think it's about remembering that, you know, AI is being developed by humans for humans. So it's really about demonstrating the value that civil society organizations bring, which is their own expertise from working with communities. You know, that's where you can really make a difference. You don't need to be a tech expert, but we also do need to bring together tech experts, tech builders with civil society experts. And by that, I mean civil society actors who can represent different local viewpoints and kind of building that bridge should lead to more inclusive AI systems. No, that's fantastic, Susie. So I mean, just I'm just picking up all the different uh, important points you've mentioned here, right from the more macro level of you know dystopian future, structures of power, and how to tackle that in an AI humanitarian AI context by bringing in different sets of expertise viewpoints to to making sure that our data sets are actually digital representations of reality as they really do exist. And uh, our models themselves need a more co-design approach with communities in which they operate and the people they affect. So maybe could we talk a bit more about that? So um, what could be the risks, potential risks of using AI tools in humanitarian response in this context? And what can we do to mitigate these risks? So it's a two-part question. Yeah, and I love the fact that you've just brought up there, Shivang, one of the key ways of mitigating the risks, and it's about co-design. So one of the key ways to mitigate any of the risks that I can list now is about maintaining a human in the loop and going, you know, obviously that has a specific kind of technical meaning within kind of AI development sector. But where I'm talking about keeping a human in the loop is about that genuinely authentically participatory design with people in civil society in in the global south whom at the moment tech developers are not really talking to and you know i mean going beyond kind of um highly educated engineers from different global south countries who of course are you know extremely important and you know that is a certain aspect there is a certain diversity to that but i'm talking about bringing in very diverse voices from rural communities in South Sudan to, you know, urban Kabul across age, gender, sexual orientation, ability, disability, um, ethnic groups, so on, you know, people with very, very different lived experiences. So, but in terms of, you know, what might be some of the kind of potential risks around using AI tools within humanitarian response, I mean, I think some of the issues are you talked about that kind of lack of representative data, because if there is not representative and and holistic data being fed into systems, then I think there's a real kind of risk of inaccurate or incomplete information, which then leaves to decisions 
by NGOs and, and civil society organisations because they're trusting what seems like a really robust model to give them a very clear black and white answer. And when you're applying that to vulnerable um, populations, you know, that's really dangerous. So I think, you know, that kind of risk of inaccurate or incomplete information, you know, whether that's about services or rights and so on. So if you imagine, say, say there's a chatbot that, you know, a refugee is relying on to find out whether a certain services, um, urgent services in a certain, you know, new country that that person has arrived in and that information is incorrect, you know, we can see immediately there's a potential harm there. Um, you know, equally kind of planning projects around a design that is based on certain needs which have been identified, but may, for example, be completely gender blind. So actually is completely inappropriate for half the population. Then things like, you know, disaster preparedness and response, I think is is an issue as well. And that kind of even, you know, I was learning too long ago that there's even potential bias in geospatial data. You know, if you're not an expert in that, you'd think, well, hang on, I thought surely that would be correct. But, you know, in, if that's being used to apply to how we respond to natural disasters or earthquakes, well, if there is kind of lack of data about, you know, what is the genuine population density because there's a lack of mobile phones because people are poorer or so on or you know who has a mobile phone in a family and who doesn't well normally it would be the man in the family who if there's only one phone you know so therefore you know you're just not getting an accurate picture but it looks really accurate and really persuasive um you know and I think you know obviously there are significant discussions now about bias in AI and then other kind of AI systems, you know, even beyond chatbots, where systems are determining whether or not someone gets access to sometimes life-saving social goods, whether that's also kind of housing, you know, shelter, um, you know, decisions about parole and so on. Um, you know, and I think when we apply those kind of issues that I think you know, there's been a lot of work on this in the States, but if we then apply that to the humanitarian field, you know, this starts getting very dark very quickly. So if you're thinking then about humanitarian aid becoming conditional on whether or not you're providing biometric data, when somebody literally has no choice other than to give that up, then, you know, someone not having a choice and being reliant on others for aid in another situation can lead to real exploitation and even dangerous sexual exploitation. Well, there are similar dynamics here that like, you know, you either get aid or you don't get aid, you know, but it's up to you that you've got to give us your biometric data. For me, that raises real rights concerns. And also there are so many issues around kind of potential data safe, safeguarding and data harvesting and so on. So I think that's a real concern. And then there's no recourse, you know, in, in those kind of conversations in the States around fair provision of housing and welfare benefits. There's no recourse about decisions. Why have I not been given certain help that I might think is due to me? Well, you know, apply that to a humanitarian emergency, and that's even harder. You know, so much of the time in traditional humanitarian aid delivery, we try to be really clear about what are our 
targeting metrics and uh, the approach we take so that we can explain that to people who might have fallen outside of the net of who gets A's. But how do you explain that if that decision has been made, whether or not you get cash or not, by an AI system? And then I think kind of things like, you know, migration and border control systems, you know, there's a danger there about those interfering with refugee rights. You know, if facial recognition is being used there um, or biometric data is being used to make automated decisions about asylum processes, you know, this is where these questions about transparency and accountability really come to come to the sharp end. Yeah. And then, you know, even things like where chatbots are being used, you know, talked about quite a lot about use in humanitarian aid. Well, there are limitations and we know chatbots can hallucinate. We know what happens to kind of ongoing maintenance when they're deployed into a, into a field. You know, how do we make sure they're community appropriate? How do we make particularly how do we make sure they're appropriate for vulnerable users and know what may or may not be being said or advised to those vulnerable users. So yeah, I've quite a few things. This is Brent listening in. It's interesting because there's a whole movement around how do you identify people who are kind of marginalized or who live in remote areas or who don't have access to this number or that number and it's interesting because in the AI age, it seems like we actually rely on people to have an ID so that we can cross-connect them with the AI application to provide them services. So when you're talking about identifying populations, you're right, there's kind of a gap in how do you acknowledge who's really there at this ID movement. It, I, I kind of lost track of it. I haven't heard much about it lately. And what are your thoughts just briefly on that? Um. This is a real challenge that we have, right? I mean, obviously, aid agencies have struggled over decades with how do you make sure that with limited resources, that those resources are reaching the right people, that if someone's receiving aid, you know, is the right person who receives it and they're receiving it once to make sure that, you know, there isn't double counting or to eradicate any kind of, you know, danger of fraud or things like that. I guess it's just, you know, there is a big trade-off here if we are saying that every single person on the planet has to have a logged identity that is you know moving around the digital system and they then kind of lose kind of control and track of where that identity is going you know aside from any kind of you know dangers of identity theft and things like that I think there is you know a question there about privacy and also I think you know at the moment there is an imbalance where you're saying to people who have no choice whether or not to engage with digital ID systems, but they have to because it's a matter of survival, I think that's a different situation and power balance than it is to, say, somebody like myself who chooses to publish on LinkedIn. All right, Chibeng, back to you. I'm just in two minds right now because this uh, conversational thread was going in a very interesting direction of how data is collected on um, on communities that are affected by crises and then, you know, data for cash, data for assistance. If you don't provide that, then you can't get access to very basic things you need to survive and to get by. So I will not jump into that right now. I'm just making notes of um, the previous points that uh, Susie has raised on the many risks uh, that emerge, um, you know, many challenges in, in using humanitarian AI systems. So I'm just trying to make that into a process framework. 
of some kind. So you have um, data which is not necessarily collected properly. By properly, I mean in a representative fashion. So the training data sets are themselves not accurate representations of reality. The models are kind of not built in a co-design approach like Susie, you mentioned. And then there's an over-reliance um, on these models, which we take for granted as uh, ground reality. So it's like a cascading effect where these biases are inserted at different stages in the AI pipeline, which then you know imprint, amplify over time, and that has implications for refugee rights, for gender-based violence, and it's it's all interconnected. Um, it it has this multiplier negative effect, which is hard to foresee and um, and to quantify. So so far we've talked about um, the unintended effects that we are not wary of as developers, as humanitarian actors. And you started talking about um, the conversation was bordering on the cusp of the dark side of humanitarian AI. So maybe let's shift gears in a more provocative, more critical direction of using AI systems in um, in vulnerable contexts, not just in humanitarian aid. So could you talk a bit more about that, how AI systems can create needs for humanitarian action? Yeah, thanks, Shivang. And I loved your synthesis there of that framework. Um, yeah, you've summarized things beautifully. So yeah, and I think, you know, talking about a framework, it kind of goes back, I think, to the way I kind of split the two ways in which humanitarian agencies need to think about AI. So number one, what are the opportunities and potential risks of using AI systems within vulnerable communities in humanitarian response? And secondly, yeah, it's about, you know, let's think how AI systems could potentially drive humanitarian needs more broadly because you know that's the work we're in and we need to be prepared if there are certain areas in which you know AI systems might actually drive some of those needs in addition to all the potential opportunities that exist certainly you know for tackling big global health issues or climate change but let's think also more critically about you know where it could also drive need so I think number one for me is that at the moment, I think with AI systems being very much largely created in the global north, all this, you know, the skills mainly being centered in the global north and therefore kind of, you know, the world view of what a good AI system looks like. I think there's a real danger of that perpetuation of huge global inequality. So we know global inequality is at its worst, that we know that global inequality is at its highest than it, that it has ever been. And you know, with the majority of AI skills being centered in the global north, we're looking that potentially the benefits of AI will also continue to accrue in the north as well. And that comes down to bias, it, the potential impact on jobs um, and the kind of jobs that are likely to be subsumed to AI systems, um, you know, potentially more likely the kind of jobs that you might have in the global south. The question, I think, is really about who benefits and how do we address that? So at the moment, you know, innovation in AI is really driven by the private sector and the profit motive within that. I'm not saying that Everybody who works on AI, many of whom are extremely intelligent people who want to change the world positively. But within companies, there, of course, is that profit motive. And of course, there is also this huge interstate competition, right? I mean, this is one of the reasons I called the machine race the machine race, because we are in array. There's an array of races to innovate quicker and faster than everybody else. 
so with that context it's really about how do we ensure that this kind of emerging technology is for everyone's public good so if access to social goods and welfare are being determined by a biased ai model people in an already vulnerable community might become much worse off and then i think you know if we think also about generative ai Generative AI is the one I think that people can, you know, see and look and touch and kind of get their heads around. But, you know, there is a risk that that might potentially contribute to more conflict and social division. So aside from kind of risks of online abuse, and I'll come on to that, but in 2024, we're going to have over 70 global elections. And, you know, the risk we've seen, obviously, what's happened in previous elections, you know, in the States and Brexit, you know, how the information kind of harvested by Cambridge Analytica was then fed into AI systems to target people with, you know, with messaging that arguably skewed some electoral results. Well, I mean, now with generative AI, you know, all of those concerns that we've had about social media AI, generative AI, has the ability to turbo boost those harms. So on the one hand, you know, there are some people who say, well, you know, do you know what? It doesn't matter. It's not going to have an effect because actually people are so distrusting of anything that they see in the social media that it won't make a difference. But for me, that is a real concern in itself because, you know, the question is now, what is the truth? Nobody knows what the truth is anymore. And in the absence of that, I mean, you know, obviously everyone has a different truth, but, you know, in the absence of trustworthy information, neutral, impartial, unbiased information, then people will start making up their own opinions about, you know, about events. And so I think in that case, if people go to the, the polls in elections and then the election results come through and people just don't accept those results, there is a real concern around post-election violence. And so that's something that humanitarian actors really, I think, should be aware of and prepared for. You know, and we've seen also there's kind of an exponential capacity for hate speech, hate speech generation. You know, we've seen you know, the horrendous effects of that in places like Myanmar and other contexts. So I think the concern around deep fakes is, is a real concern. And actually, you know, talking of deep fakes, talking to other fellow protection professionals, there's a real concern actually about sexual exploitation and child exploitation through deep fakes. So that is a real concern. I know even in the UK, kind of police officers who are trying to combat child exploitation and abuse in the UK are saying that the kind of deep fake imagery is making it even harder because then aside from creating extremely concerning proliferation of this kind of imagery, but they also do not know within imagery who is a real person and a real victim that needs immediate you know, help right a second and, and what is fake. Um, and then of course, conflict and warfare, which we could have a whole, you know, a whole separate podcast on. If AI systems are going to be used to conduct warfare, if parties, conflict parties think that conducting warfare through AI might actually lower the barrier to going to war, will that increase civilian casualties? What does this mean? You know, what do autonomous weapons or any other use of AI in, in warfare mean for international humanitarian law? I mean, you know, these are all questions that humanitarians need to think about. 
Absolutely. I mean, I love the term you use, Susie, double boosting harms. Isn't that a much more catchy way of remembering, thinking about AI ethics issues and risks? I think we should use that term more often. That might be the topic of my next paper, uh, with your permission, of course. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it also draws me to this uh, idea that we've spoken about a few times, although not in depth, but like technocentric wars. You know, you have uh, uh, technologies which amplify disinformation campaigns very in a very orchestrated way, whether it's in the context of elections or it could be COVID-19 misinformation. And then you have technologies created to counter that. So I know Nesta was working with IFRC in Kenya to create this tool report and respond to, to combat COVID-19 misinformation in communities. And then at UCL, we had this challenge along with other educational institutions when ChatGPT became a very big thing and there wasn't a way of understanding it or a framework to how to prevent students from using GPT to write their entire essays. And then there were other solutions, large language models to detect whether a student has used you know, GPT to, to write their essays. So that's uh, another conversation entirely. So I was just thinking it's always darkest before dawn, you know, that we've talked about all this dark stuff. So let's talk about something a bit more positive. So what could be your recommended approaches on how we can design responsible, inclusive humanitarian AI systems? And Brent and I have spoken at length previously about building bridges between knowledge centers and communities, developers and humanitarian agents and then academic institutions. So could you talk about that? What could be the lessons that AI developers can draw from aid workers and generally in a cross-sector kind of approach? I think there's some really key lessons that can be drawn from the aid sector's efforts to decolonize aid. So, you know, I think the parallel is really clear because we hear a lot about these lofty ambitions of AI developers, as I mentioned before, particularly in the big tech companies about solving climate change and global poverty. And that's really reminiscent of these vision statements of the disaster relief agencies like my own and so on. But INGOs are accepting that uncomfortable truth that we have been implementing a colonial model and sadly still are in, you know, as we go through this process. But we're slowly trying to change the system so that we're supporting local actors and it's a truly locally led response. So the crucial thing is to bring in really practical measures to put funding and decision-making in the hands of affected communities. So Susie, you talk about building a new model. A new model or a new approach is required for designing, deploying, and for the governance of AI systems in the humanitarian sector. Could you speak a bit more about what you mean by this model? Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about this kind of how do we decolonize AI question, if we think that a new world architecture is being formed, is being architected right now, we need to promote the Global South leadership in that restructuring, because otherwise we're going to exacerbate inequality and all of those unfair power dynamics that you know, we've been trying to move away from. So if the aid sector needs to be decolonized, and that's a sector that exists to help people, we certainly need to decolonize AI, which is largely being built in the private sector. So I think it's about getting global South actors into those leadership positions across the multi-layered settings, which you know, you've talked about before, um, Shivang. And so getting global South actors into leadership positions where the governance, design, deployment and use of AI systems is being decided 
you know, that's across the private sector, the political domains, you know, academia and civil society um, platforms as well. You know, so civil society actors have to be at the decision making table, both in discussions about governance and safety, but also about design itself. But, you know, so we have the UK AI Safety Summit happening in November in the UK, but we're really not seeing a wide range of Global South civil society representatives attending. And we haven't seen that either at high level discussions, you know, be that at the EU or at previous UN conferences. And that has to change, you know, and that's actually where INGOs can play a role as a convener. So, you know, we've got global networks of civil society partners and we really need to amplify their voices. It's time to pass the microphone and help get them into the room, whether that's high level governance discussions, you know, and also kind of events that we can host ourselves and also within AI development labs themselves. So it's really about kind of needing to build those bridges between AI developers and diverse individuals and communities. So, you know, the way I think about it is building just a really human-to-human connection so that AI developers can truly understand the lived experiences of people who are very different to themselves, living in very different geographies. That's great, Susie. So just about that, about building bridges, um, you know, amongst so many different entities uh, operating in the space, which is always very dynamic, all crisis context that changed so quickly. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Why does this matter? What can tech developers actually learn from the humanitarian sector? And one challenge I've noticed um, while working, for example, in Sudan and um, in the ongoing crisis as well, is the frontline staff themselves want to be heard by developers. It's um, not just the inclusion of community members and how they're affected, but the staff who are actually delivering aid, that they know the experience of being there. So could you talk about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. If you don't consult with a diverse range of people, your product is going to be inappropriate or unsafe for many people. Just the same as if you don't consult on a humanitarian program, exactly the same. So, for example, there's a real kind of difference between the answers you get from men and women regarding safety, particularly around gender based violence in communities before and after an emergency you know I saw this really clearly in Mozambique also kind of it really depends you know who has access to mobile phones for example you know there are so many very specific dimensions to kind of different people's experiences so exposing technologists to the lived experiences of people with different backgrounds to their own is what will help make those systems much more appropriate and contextualized So at CARE, we have this advisory board made up of female leaders from women's organizations all around the world. So from South Sudan to Lebanon to Afghanistan. So, you know, maybe that's something that tech companies could do, do the same thing. In addition to bringing people from very different communities to actually kind of possibly do some work or project based work within companies. But the reason why I say kind of advisory boards as well is that you don't necessarily want people who kind of have even burgeoning tech skills. You know, you want to be speaking to people, you know, as I say, the rural farmer in Uganda who has a very specific idea about what is right for climate 
you know, how to make sure his crops are still going to be growing next year with all the effects of climate change. But I think there's a real important need here for a transfer of knowledge in both directions, actually. So it's about kind of building that tech capacity for people in the global south, you know, because ultimately people should be building their own AI systems. So I think we need to have investment in global south AI skills so that people outside the global north are also equipped to make, build and make decisions on what safe and inclusive AI systems look like. So, you know, that's again, that kind of redirection, equitable sharing of of funding, decision-making, tech skills and so on, whilst at the same time helping people who live in the global north developing these systems, you know, make them as, as appropriate as possible if they are going to be deployed in the global south. That's great, Susie. Um, I'm just going to take an interesting, relevant digression here because you mentioned about climate change and the relationship between climate change and human rights is uh, it's becoming more clear, especially in academic research. And we know that the way climate change can exacerbate ongoing crises almost exponentially. It's not just the long-term effects that we always think about, but whether it's you know, seasonal droughts, it's sudden flash floods and, and things like that. So could you talk a little bit about how you see AI systems or solutions or approaches offering what you consider to be groundbreaking in this space uh, where scientific data is quite central? Is there also something that you could comment about whether systems are more suitable in this context because it's more objective scientific data as opposed to you know, socially constructed, socially created, and therefore more provocative and critical social contexts? Sorry, it's a two-point question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the use of AI within proposed climate change solutions is a really interesting example of where it can seem perfectly appropriate, because in some ways it's, you know, it's about a scientific technological solution to something that seems like a very scientific problem, right? So, you know, AI systems are fantastic at spotting patterns, at crunching through data. So that should mean that they're brilliant at providing early warnings and and giving insights into potential climate change mitigation, which of course, you know, all of this stuff is going to be increasingly crucial. But it's also really important to remember the human in any of these scientific or technological solutions to these huge global problems, because this over-reliance or blind faith in technology to solve what are ultimately man-made problems, risks, well, first of all, failing then to do the necessary behaviour change work that is needed to reduce emissions. And then secondly, algorithmic answers have a very persuasive seductiveness because they're definitive. But, you know, we know there are issues of transparency around what data has been inputted and what data is absent So, you know, again, local actors need to be heard and have decision making input. And so, you know, within the development and climate sector, in the principles around locally led change adaptation, we talk about building a more robust, holistic understanding of climate risk and uncertainty to inform decisions about adaptation. So locally led in that case means combining scientific knowledge, which, of course, you know, scientific data, which is, of course, important, but combining that with local, generational, traditional and indigenous knowledge. And that's the kind of data that might be missed in an AI system. 
it's, it's up to your brand. How would you like to take the next few questions? As we're recording today, Annette Hope is wrapping up their global summit. And one of the prime subjects is the agenda on AI and how should we be working together around AI? How should humanitarian community members be collaborating? And what are your thoughts? And I mean, that's a great question, Brent, because we've um, often lamented, talked about, and endeavored to create bridge communities uh, that traverse different domains of knowledge. So we have these communities that are sometimes ad hoc. They come up and you have a few people who take interest in them and then they kind of taper away and they go away. And the lessons are retained in the silos, but they're collectively lost and no one knows where they are, who to reach out to. So the idea is not just to build bridge communities, but to create a sustained approach, a funnel of knowledge across communities that keeps going. So the communities I'm thinking of is to connect um, as anchor communities because the people in these spaces tend to stay there. So around academic capacities within, say, the UK. And I know that there are some grants um, out there right now in the UK to build such communities. So the idea is to build a bridge between academic communities, humanitarian aid communities, and, and generally towards AI safety. And I think Susie mentioned this earlier that um, we have a lot of interesting events that can catalyze these spaces. Almost immediately, we have uh, AI Fringe, which is supporting the AI Safety Summit that's happening in the UK. And as NetHope is coming to an end, I'm sure there'll be conversations that'll be carried over because the same group of people are moving across these spaces, across these conferences. And luckily, we are lucky that we have um, momentum in these next few months. There are a string of conferences, the same group of people are flowing across, and we can probably create something with with an anchor, I suppose, with some sense of resolve that won't dissipate over time. Uh, so that's been the endeavor of my PhD as well, that for the next few years, um, I would like to build this community. And UCL School of Management has, uh, has a very proactive approach towards uh, working with humanitarian aid organizations and towards working with AI safety in general. So happy to get in touch with anyone. Just feel free to reach out to me anytime and we can take the conversation forward. Yeah, and I think that's all really important and, and spot on. And I think what we can do as well is, you know, I think one of the dangers sometimes is that it is the same voices and the same people going to some of these conferences. So, you know, it's being alive to that and then using whatever leverage that we have and any platforms that we have to really start building out those bridges to global South civil society so we can pass the microphone and kind of get those groups and individuals in those four as well so really representing their perspectives too so yeah that's the next item on the agenda it's interesting i'm actually going to a conference next month as well a virtual conference this time but it's connected with the international aid transparency initiative and i'll be speaking about an initiative at stanford university involving students looking at how large language models can traverse complex cross-connecting information on humanitarian aid activities so I think, Shivani, like what you're doing is so vital to bring the academic sector connected with the humanitarian sector and, and with the private sector and tech companies. And, you know, it's so important what you're doing and it's so important what Susie's doing. And I think what you're advocating, these stronger connections are, are so important right now. So before we close, we like to ask our guests to think about a futuristic AI application that they would love to see exist could be right now, could be in the near future, and then describe that a little bit to us. So Susie, what would you love to see in your space? 
Yeah, this is a great question, and I'll probably approach it from a slightly different angle from, you know, the usual fantastic tech experts that you have on the podcast. But I was thinking about this. And so we have AI translation applications, and those are supposed to help us understand what others are saying. Although we also know that lots of languages are missing or they're not always, you know, correct. And then we've also got social media that offers up what others are supposedly experiencing, right? So although, you know, we also happen to know that we're seeing the views of people that essentially reflect our own views, right, within the echo chamber. But I think that, you know, given that humans are not actually always the most intelligent when it comes to understanding others, you know, perhaps we could have an AI system that could really genuinely make us understand, empathize and feel the lived experiences of others. And maybe the world might be a slightly more peaceful place if that existed. The answer you just gave, um, the paper we just submitted to MISQ was titled Sentient Intelligence Systems. So away from rationalistic models of creating intelligent systems towards a new paradigm that's based on increasing the scope and scale of human activity, involvement, multiple touch points, and we create this kind of uh, a semi-philosophical, but we think pragmatic approach at the same time, which is not necessarily true. But the reviewers will tell us that. Oh, can't wait to read that. Yeah, it'll take a while, as all things in academia and peer review. Shivang, it's kind of funny because on this show, we always try to turn the tables on our guest hosts and ask them the very same question. So how about you? Think of a futuristic AI application and uh, describe it for us. I mean, thinking about a realistic but futuristic AI application, I'm thinking of all the numerous AI tools that have been used across different humanitarian functions and humanitarian domains, um, a way to read the, the training data sets across all these tools to somehow bring them together to create comprehensive solutions. Because as we know uh, where the world is going to go in, in different geographical regions, you've got different standards, different principles, different working groups, interagency standing committees who have different standards for implementing and using AI systems. So if you can find a tool that can sort of create like a, a context specific sensitive approach that works for all stakeholders in that area, right from the top level, right from the government to INGOs to local NGOs, on specific problems, then that would be quite useful. Uh, but I know my answer is quite broad right now. It's fascinating because on the show, we've actually had a couple of interviews thinking about AI education. And uh, it was pre-ChatGPT. And it's interesting to think about how education has evolved thanks to conversational AI applications and the idea of a humanitarian actor with Doctors Without Borders or Oxfam or Mercy Corps turning to ChatGPT to learn about epidemiology or something like that. And do you think that in the future, chatbots are going to play a large role in training humanitarian actors on AI for good? Yeah, very much so, because um, I mean, recently we submitted this article to one of our academic peer-reviewed journals, and one of the insights or one of the provocative suggestions we made was that chatbots are going to, not just chatbots, but um, other AI tools and other ways of interfacing with humanitarian staff are going to train humanitarian agents to be a bit more reflexive in their approach towards approaching humanitarian problems uh, to find out where are they shooting themselves in the foot, for example. If they're storing data in their laptops and they're not quite aware of it or they are aware of it, but it becomes like a standardized, institutionalized practice that no one speaks about. 
to things like that in the realm of cybersecurity to actually to monitoring logistics, for example. So a kind of a check and balance, like a like a conscience in the background that just lets you know if you're on track. I know it's quite provocative, but um, I'm certain we'll see some of that, um, if not in the next few years. Yeah, thinking about staying on track, I wonder if universities today are staying on track themselves in terms of keeping up with advances in AI that are occurring on a, a weekly basis compared to a yearly basis and developing curriculum to meet the needs of students today who themselves want to keep pace with advances and be part of this AI age. So it's challenging. So uh, yeah, thank you for your answer. And we look forward to having some more interviews on AI education. And can you uh, suggest a topic for an upcoming interview on AI education? One thing that's missing, I think, in AI education is um, the challenges that organizations are facing with not developing the technical side of AI tools, but how are they integrated within organizations themselves and the disruptive effects these uh, novel technologies are having in organizations and how non-technical specialists are having to deal with it. And this is largely the case for, um, and there's a bit of a paradox that you have, the bigger the organization, the bigger the voice they have, the more they speak about or creating white papers or reports on how we need to integrate AI to create standards for this, but behind the scenes, they are not able to do much. There's a larger, there's more inertia, I suppose, in legacy organizations, especially, and I'm not taking names here, but we know uh, that happens quite a lot. So it'd be interesting to develop educational tools on how AI systems can be integrated within organizations without being too disruptive in sort of um, in a processual piecemeal kind of approach. I like that. That's quite a good answer. At University College London, how do you find your, your colleagues viewing humanitarian AI and, you know, AI for good applications in the generative AI age? At UCL, we have um, quite a large capacity. We have a lot of professors, um, specialists who are working on healthcare, in strategy, in operations, um, in, in other forms of information systems expertise. So it's quite a broad range of people. I think the challenge at this point with especially large organizations like UCL and say even Cambridge is to bring people on the same page so academics can share insights and work with practitioners to design solutions that they speak about um, in research, so in our peer-reviewed journals. There's a mismatch there sometimes that we are not having the conversation with each other across, but rather we're having conversations within silos. And this has been a challenge in academia for a very long time anyway. So we're beginning to see interesting calls for funding from, say, UKHIH to bring these two communities together to match academic capacities with practitioner desires and needs and wants and expertise together. And uh, hopefully this is going to be a pivot and not a flash in the pan kind of thing. That is where I hope to see it going forward. As this interview is being recorded, NetHope is having their annual global summit and they have an agenda on AI. and incorporating AI into humanitarian organizations is on the table and people are sort of roadmapping how to proceed and where to take this on their own as well. And uh, it's true, they need to be collaborating with tech companies and looking at practical applications and iterating through projects just to develop the capacity to work on these things. So Susie, how about you? How do you think humanitarian organizations can build capacity in AI you know, from an educational standpoint, like what do they need to be doing to grow their own knowledge of how to experiment with AI? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think the education question comes from two angles, because I think there's a need for people working in NGOs to kind of get educated themselves. And I think quite often, you know, many of us feel really overwhelmed by AI. It seems like, you know, a really scary tech thing. And most of us don't have tech skills. But, you know, I think this is kind of one of the key reasons I wanted to start writing The Machine Race, because, you know, we need to democratize AI and that starts with understanding it. So first of all, there's kind of loads out there now, you know, from, you know, brilliant podcasts like your own to books, to articles, to films as well. You know, there are so many things out there, you know, papers online. But, you know, also then the second side of it is, you know, how do we support kind of people in the global south to have those te- emerging tech skills so that they can understand, you know, first of all, how to build AI systems themselves that are appropriate um, to their own context and, you know, lacking kind of global north biases and so on. But also, you know, having the right skills and knowledge to know what the questions are around governance. Um, so I think those are really important. And then, um, you know, and I think it's also about kind of having public conversations. So I was um, on a panel recently just within our local library in southeast London. And um, it was, you know, set up with the help of like the local, you know, Norwood Library and Oxford University and Mindaroo, who do a lot around public consultation. So loads of people from the community in the room and just asking, you know, what does AI mean for us and how do we have a say in how it comes into our lives and how it's governed? So more actions like that, I think, were really important. I agree with you. And uh, one last thing, you know, we've broached the subject of chatbots actually teaching humanitarian actors about AI for good. And governance as well. You know, we, we might be seeing this on the horizon in a day <laughs> in terms of the, the, the pace that this is going. But would you feel comfortable having a, a chatbot with the persona of the whole entire humanitarian community teaching you about AI governance? Well, I mean, I think this is the nub of the issue, isn't it? Um, you know, it's humans who build AI systems. And so therefore, we know that there are lots of bias built into AI systems, but also there's just a massive lack of representative data. You know, the majority of the information is coming from the global north and being fed into systems in in the global north. And then, you know, kind of very black and white answers are coming out of it that might seem like the absolute unquestionable truth because you're given just one answer. And, you know, as with all humanitarian and development work, as with, you know, as, as with all work that, you know, has a big impact on communities and society, you know, it has to be kind of, you know, the human must be in the loop and, you know, finding ways, practical operational ways, democratic ways to get diverse voices into those systems, I, I think is crucial. Yeah. And I think so. Obviously, I think there are there's huge opportunity for all of these different AI systems to to assist in, you know, in education and in humanitarian and development work. But I worry about an over reliance on it, where we kind of lose the humanity that is core to being a humanitarian, doing humanitarian work. Well, I'll come <laughs> to the next question now. So, Susie, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Any takeaways? Um, any shout outs? Um, well, you know, do check out the machine race on Medium. So two actions for that. Feel free to hit follow. But also, if you click the small envelope icon, you can receive an email when a new blog is released. So you, you don't miss any. 
And you can also follow me on LinkedIn where I post a lot of stuff. So yeah, so I'm just really keen to talk to others working in this area, you know, and particularly tech companies to see how we can build some of those healthy linkages that we've talked about. So um, yeah, so do get in touch. And if you're at the AI Safety Summit, I'll be at the AI Fringe events all week. Um, So reach out and hope to see you there too. Right. Well, thank you, Susie. Thank you very much for being on our show. And uh, thank you, Brent, for for co-hosting this along with me. And um, looking forward to anyone reaching out to us. Uh, Happy to get in touch in the future. Oh, well, listen, thank you so much, Siobhan. Brilliant interviewer. And it's fantastic kind of hearing all the stuff that you're up to as well. And Brent, you know that I'm a massive fan of of this podcast and, you know, and all the work you're doing because you're really creating a community around this. And that's what we need. So, yeah, thank you so much for the time. I've loved being on here. Thank you both. And this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.